Welcome to Renewed by the Word with Pastor Edwin from Redeemer Church, Miami. We are glad you can join us today. Please grab your Bibles as we walk through the Word of God together this morning. Redeemer Church, if you will open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 28. We are going to be in verses 11 through 20. Again, church, it's always awesome to be here with you. Uh, albeit online, on this fantastic, glorious day. And you'll probably be thinking, uh, it's a little rainy today, Alex. It's a beautiful day. I just laid sod this week, and my grass is loving this rain. So it it is a beautiful day. And you guys get to be at home with this quarantine and didn't have to come out uh, because it's not so good for driving. But we thank the Lord we get to gather online and again, we lift up his name and we get to worship him. So today we see what is uh, normally called the Great Commission in chapter 28 in the Gospel of Matthew. But right before, and it's titled here in my version, The Guard's Report, and that's why I've titled it today's sermon, Go. That's the command, to go. But there's the conspiracy that precedes the command. So we have the conspiracy and then the command. And how did we get here? Since Easter, since Resurrection Day, we've been looking at these appearances of Jesus post-resurrection prior to his ascension. And we looked at Luke's account of his first appearances to the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. And Jesus reminds us to wait for the Holy Spirit. In our case, we have the Holy Spirit available to us. We need to grab onto Him and have the faith that He gives us to believe. And then Pastor Edwin took us to the road to Emmaus, two disciples walking along, and because of their grief and because of their sorrow, they don't recognize Jesus. But Jesus walks them through it, enlightens them. He opens up their eyes. And after being filled with joy at seeing the resurrected Christ, they run back immediately. And then doubting Thomas, right? We love to call him doubting Thomas, but there was doubt in that first initial appearance to the disciples. There was doubt amongst uh, the two on the road to Emmaus. They didn't even see Jesus. We're going to see a little doubt today, even at the end, right before Jesus ascends. But like Thomas, like the disciples, we are called to cast away our doubt. We are called to believe and have faith, even though we don't have the benefit of seeing his hands and feet, of seeing his pierced side. And last week, Pastor Edwin brought us through that encounter of Jesus and some of the disciples, a select few, who were out fishing, who were back into their comfort zone, who were going back to what they knew. And Jesus specifically calls Peter to tend to his flock. But if you will remember, we have to have submission before we go out on the mission. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. Now go take care of my church. And this morning as we dive into our text, we're going to start with a little bit 
of the apologetics of the empty tomb. Remember the conspiracy begins almost immediately. Almost immediately the conspiracy begins. And the text reminds us that it's as the women or on their way back to tell the disciples of the good news, these guards run off in the other direction to tell the chief priests what has just happened, right? Uh, Mary, the women have seen the angels, Mary sees Jesus, and they are running back to tell the disciples. And again, these guards who were hired by the chief priests are running back to to tell their story. Here's what uh, Matthew at the beginning of chapter 28 says about this encounter. The guards were so afraid of him, the angel of the Lord who had appeared to roll back the stone, that they shook and became like dead men. They basically passed out. Here are these soldiers, these men of war, these fighting men. You got to picture them. They are big and strong. They weren't wimps, yet they fainted, fainted at the sight of this. And now, they're running back to tell their story. And again, what could their story have sounded like? I'm just imagining here for a second that they go back to the chief priest and they're like, listen, some women showed up and they want to see and they want to finish preparing the the, the body that they had started on Friday. And we're talking to them and all of a sudden, this almost like an earthquake happens because this dude all dressed in white, he is shining so bright, he appears, and now I probably don't think they admitted to passing out, right? They, they, they may have wanted to hold on to their pride. So they may tell, he was so bright, we were blinded, we couldn't see, there was the big earthquake, we fell to the ground. But when we wake up, when we uh, come to our senses, we rush into the tomb because the the big, large stone is rolled away and the dead guy's not there. We come out, dude in white is gone, we can't find the women, there's nobody around, no sign of the dead guy. What do we do? What do we do? And again, here's where the conspiracy theory starts. The chief priests actually meet And they devised this plan. And here's where it kind of doesn't even make sense, the plan that they come up with in this story. But you have to go back to and remind yourself that they're the ones that asked Pilate to put a guard up because they feared that the disciples were going to come and steal the body and advance this empty tomb theory. you got to remember the Pharisees and the, and the uh, Sanhedrin and the scribes, they were all listening to Jesus. They had heard Jesus say, in three days I will rise again. You're going to kill me. The Son of Man must be lifted up. I must be crucified, but I will rise in three days. So they were already, prior to his resurrection, they were already thinking, well, We really don't believe he's going to come back from the dead. We believe in the resurrection, but he's a blasphemer. So we don't believe what he's saying. But just in case, for this to work, maybe the disciples are going to come steal the body. Let's put a guard up. 
right? So they had already planned this in, a, in advance, but now they're telling these guards, listen, tell them you fell asleep, okay? And that the disciples came and stole the body. And the guards agreed to this for a large sum of money because think about it. If I'm a guard at that time, A, I just lost a dead body, which is punishable by death. Now you're asking me to say that I fell asleep, which is also punishable by death because it's a dereliction of duty, that which you hired me for. So I'm either going to have to face up and accept, and, and as soldiers, usually you'd rather do that than claim cowardice, I passed out, or I fell asleep. So they took this substantial amount of money and went with the lie and went with the light. But it makes no sense. If they were sleeping, how would they know that it was the disciples that stole the body? See, the conspiracy theory starts to crumble. And it happens with lies. Anytime we start lying, you need another lie to cover it up, and the lies break down. And this is what happens here. The lies start breaking down. Remember the Pharisees already in the Sanhedrin already lied about Jesus to get him, to, uh, to get him crucified right? You're a blasphemer. You're causing all these problems, which he wasn't. They lied about it. And now the lie has to continue. The lie has to continue. But these Pharisees are so hell-bent on continuing this conspiracy theory that they even tell these soldiers, take the money, say these things and we have you covered when the governor if he starts asking if he tries to cause you problems we will continue to lie for you we will continue to lie for you and that very last sentence is verse 15 and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day and it applies to us because it has not only been circulated among the Jews, but it has been circulated among the whole world to this very day because we still talk about the empty tomb. Nobody denies the empty tomb anymore. Too many uh, historical facts surrounding the empty tomb that we don't deny it. But we still have all these other theories that surround and why does Matthew put this here right in between? He's the only one that records this. And why does he put this here between one appearance of Jesus and the other? First and foremost, he was addressing what was going on in his day. This story was circulating. Remember, Matthew's written late 50s, early 60s, and the story had to have been already circulating. This idea that the disciples stole the body. And we know from later Jewish writings that they insisted that this is what happened. Jewish historical writings insist that this is what happened. But the application here for his church is that the denial of Jesus as Messiah was early and aggressive even before his death. And it should come to no surprise to us today that it is still going on. The world denies Jesus. 
the world denies Jesus. And because of this, we cannot fool ourselves or kid ourselves that we are not going to have opposition to the sharing of the gospel, to the message of the gospel. Jesus warned, of, warned us of this prior to his death. In this world, you will have trouble. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. This is the reality of being a Christian and of sharing the gospel. We will face opposition. We must be ready and remember that we are not alone. We have Jesus' promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit that He will always be with us. And why do we face this opposition? Why do we face this opposition? And we find it here in starting in verse 16 in this account of the Great Commission, in, in this account of Jesus' commands to us. Because here's the truth. If you are a Christian who just comes to church on Sundays, you worship here, but when you go back out, you don't tell anybody about it, you don't say anything, you don't share the gospel, you just keep it to yourself and then come to church and share it here in church, you will never face opposition. You will never face opposition. The problem is nobody outside of the church may know you're a Christian. Because this thought that we have that if I live a good life, a good Christian life, and I love people, and, and I'm just a good moral character, that people will know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the gospel by the way I live, by being good. People aren't going to know. People are not going to know. The gospel is news and it must be shared. And we are guaranteed to face opposition and persecution when we follow the command to share the gospel. And today I'm looking at it not only from an individual perspective as you individually go share the gospel. I'm looking at it as the church, as the body of the church that we are in Jesus Christ, that we have to go as the body. Yes, individually, we have to go and share. We're going to look a little bit at that. But overall, the focus for today is the church must go and share the gospel. And as we start here in verse 16, I want to point out something interesting that approximately 40 days have passed since uh, uh, verse 11 and verse 16. Be be between that little narrative, about 40 days have passed. Because this exchange right here are the last words Jesus says before he ascends. And we see the parallel verses, and we're going to look at them in a minute in Acts chapter 1. So about 40 days have passed. This is where all these other appearances that we've been going through the last couple of Sundays have happened in between this time. So I want to point out, it's between these, this time period between these couple of verses that Jesus has appeared to his disciples several times. He has appeared to over 500 people and lastly to James. And let me make a quick sidebar here on James because I, I just, this stuck out to me as I was preparing when we look at James. Whenever you have doubt and we see doubt, and it happens, it should happen to us. We should have our doubts that we go and pursue and we find our answers in the Word of God. But whenever you have that lingering doubt or just that thought of, man, is this true? 
Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Did people see him? Just remember James. Remember James and go read the book that he wrote. Because when you read that book and then understand that James, while Jesus was alive, while Jesus was performing miracles, while James may have been witness to some of those miracles and knew and had heard and had seen what Jesus was doing, James was saying, my brother's crazy, let's lock him up, he's an embarrassment to us, we're going to get kicked out of the synagogue because of him. Now how does that James turn into the person that wrote a book which starts, I, James, a bond servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. He could have started that book by saying, I, James, the half-brother of Jesus. Give himself a little bit elevated status. And he says, no, I, James, a slave of Jesus Christ. And then he writes that beautiful book of James. How did that happen? It could only have been the fact that James saw the risen Christ. The only explanation. And so now we see the 11 disciples go to Galilee to that mountain where Jesus tells them to go and they meet there. And look at what it says in verse 17. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Now remember, this is a big crowd of disciples. This was probably not only the 12, but some doubted. We still see people doubting. It is only faith in Christ, that God-given faith that overcomes that doubt. It is only by looking into the Word of God that we overcome that doubt. But Jesus assures them and us that He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. This should bring comfort to us. This gives us the reassurance to know that He is God and He is in control. This gives us the assurance that when we go on mission with God to share the gospel, we succeed, we cannot fail, because He has all the authority. And you may ask yourself, but wait a minute. Hasn't Jesus always had all the authority? Why is He saying now, that he has all the authority, right? And he has always had. He always has had that authority. He has always been sovereign as God. But notice he says all authority in heaven and on earth, right? So we have to understand that for a time, Satan has actually had authority on earth. We see this way back in the Old Testament when he has God to give him permission to test Job. See, Satan couldn't do anything without God's permission. But God allowed it. And then we see when Satan tempts Jesus, he told Jesus, all authority has been given to me, and I will give it to you. All authority on earth has been given to me, and I will give it to you if you would only worship me. And how does Jesus reply? With Scripture. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Jesus doesn't say to Satan, uh, you have no authority. But Jesus acknowledges who really has all the authority and power. 
He has all the authority, has always had it as the Son of God. But in this incarnated state with his human body and yet still being God, God has granted him now all authority on earth as well. Complete and utter control over everything. This is the gospel. Christ came to establish the kingdom. It is established already, but not yet fully consummated. And he has all authority and power from the beginning to the end. Forever and ever and always, he has the authority. But he's acknowledging this in front of his disciples and giving them that assurance, I am who I say I am. I have proved it by my resurrection from the dead. And now I'm telling you, based on this authority, you guys can go. And that's what he says in verse 19. Therefore, go. Therefore, go. It is not a suggestion. It is not an option. It is not multiple choice. It is a command. See, we miss the fact that God is a missional God. And we are called to be his missional people. God has been on mission since the fall. See, there were no missions in the garden. There will be no missions in the new heavens and the new, and the new earth upon his return. But in between, after the fall of man and up until his second coming, we are to be on mission with God who has been on mission since the beginning. We got to go all the way back to Genesis 3 and the fall and see the promise See the promise where he said that the woman's seed would bruise Satan on his head, would crush and defeat him. And then in Genesis 12, we see how God promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations, not just to the people he was going to establish, not just to the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews, to all nations. Well, if Abraham was going to be a blessing to all the nations. How is that going to happen if we did not go out to all the nations, if the people did not go out? And Jesus confirms this when he tells the Pharisees, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. The Pharisees were missional. They were going out on missionals to convert people to Judaism. They weren't doing a good job of it, but they were obedient to that missional call that God has on his people. So we are called to go. And it is better understood when Jesus says, go, as you go, as you go about your day, as you go about your travels, as you go travel outside your city, state, nation. So some of us will be called to go overseas, but we are not all called to be evangelists. We are not all called to leave our homes, but we are all commissioned to share the gospel. I mentioned that parallel verse that is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
And listen to what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. Think courtroom. Who are the witnesses? Those who have seen something. Those who give a testimony. Pastor Edwin mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. Give your testimony. Share your testimony. But remember, your testimony must include the gospel. Your testimony is you are a witness to who Christ is and what he has done. And it cannot be, oh, I was a drug addict, I was an alcoholic, a prostitute, I was this and that, a murderer, and Jesus saved me, and that's it. And look how great my life is. Your testimony starts with your sin, so you can identify with people, and it, you have to show them who God is and who we are in relation to Him because of our sin. And here's the hard part. We have to point out how sinful we are, right? I don't have to say, oh, you're a sinner too. No, but we have to see how our sin separates us from God. And then we have to dive into what Christ has done. And if we are not talking about His death and resurrection, we are not sharing the gospel. It has to be a complete picture. It has to start with how my sin separates me from God, an acknowledgement of that sin. It has to include repentance. It has to have the picture of Christ and that He is God and only God can satisfy my sin and pay the penalty for my sin. And then we are called to go out. And notice how He says, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and, into the, and to the ends of the earth. So for those of you who do not know your Middle Eastern geography, let me break it down for you. It's like us now saying, in Miami, in Dade County, in Broward County, and to the ends of the earth. Do you see that picture? And that's why we are all called to evangelize, to share the gospel, even though we are all not evangelists. Because everybody leaves their house. When you live here in Miami or whatever city you live in, you Maybe not now, you're not going out as much, but we leave our house. We go to work. We walk out of our house and maybe see our neighbors. Let's even start in our house. Evangelism starts in your house with your wife and your children, if you have wives and children. If you don't, it starts with your brother, mother, sister, father. We have some of those, every one of us. Start there. Those are the hardest people to talk to about the gospel. Start there. And when we start there, then we can go larger and larger. And listen, no one is saying to go to a specific destination, but as far as you travel, that's how far you should take the gospel. And some of us are called. And if you do have that calling, go. Go. We are called to make disciples. The call is also to make disciples. It's not just, let me share the gospel with you. Here's my testimony. Here who Jesus is. Have a nice day. Bye. Hope he saves you. No. We find those because sometimes we will come across 
people that we are to disciple who we never shared the gospel. It could be a new convert. He heard it from wherever he heard it. The, God did the work. The Holy Spirit causes the conversion. And we can disciple those people. The church should disciple on an ongoing basis anybody who has had the faith to believe and has been regenerated and has surrendered his life to Christ needs to be discipled. And what does that look like? Verse 20 clearly tells us, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. See, this is where sometimes we get a little, uh, little crazy about this. Teaching them everything I have commanded you. Obedience, commands. Sometimes here people start talking about, oh, that's a little legalistic. You should do this, you should do that, you should do this. Sounds like legalism. We get legalism very confused. Here, see, the, the Pharisees practiced legalism. Man-made rules that they attached to the correct religion, the correct worship of God, and made it a requirement. That's legalism. But when we disciple people and we tell them, Jesus said this, go do it, that's not legalism. Legalism is when I think that by following these rules, whether they were Christ's commands or my own misguided misconception of rules that I can achieve salvation that's where the problem begins see we follow his commands and we obey because of his great love for us because of the salvation that he freely offered we don't do it out of compulsion we do it out of love we are not forced to we willingly comply with his commands we willingly comply with his commands. And why do we need to do this? Why do we need to make disciples? Why do we need to share the gospel to a hurting and broken world? It's the only hope we have. Jesus is the only hope we have. He is the only answer. There are no other plans. There's no plan B. There's no escape hatch or escape clause. If we are not sharing what we truly know, there is no hope. There is no hope. So why don't we share it? A couple of reasons I was looking at, just thinking off the top of my head, and the polls say the same thing. A lot of times we're not sure what the gospel is. Sometimes we're just scared to share it because of the consequences, the cost, the scale. I don't want to lose my job is an excuse I've actually heard. I don't want to lose my friends. We put it on a scale and we weigh it out. A 2018 Barna poll said 30% of Christians say that evangelizing is the church's responsibility. That is the old, it's the pastor's job to evangelize. We just invite, bring them in, let the pastor do the work. 44% admit that they won't share the gospel if they know that their non-Christian friend would reject them. We want approval from man, but we don't care what God thinks. I'm going to wrap it up with this church. Before I give you a final encouragement, I'm going to give you a warning. 
Here's the real problem. Here is the real problem, especially in our prosperous Western church. The church is full of unconverted, unregenerated people. The church is full of non-Christians. Paul saw this in the church and wrote about the problems with the Judaizers in the first centuries. They wanted to put rules on people. Augustine saw this in the church and wrote about the problems with Pelagianism in the fourth century. Pelagius wanted to say, man has free will over God's sovereignty. Man is above God. Martin Luther saw it in the church and wrote about the problems in the 16th century. That's why we have the Reformation. He saw how messed up the church was. Not the true church of Christ that has always existed, will always exist, and there are no problems there. Spurgeon saw this in the church and wrote about it in the 19th century. A.W. Tozer saw the same problem in the church and wrote about it in the 20th century. But we forget that Jesus saw the problem first and wrote about it in or spoke about it with the parable of the wheat and tares. The church will always have the unregenerated, unconverted. So evangelism sometimes starts right here in the church. We should be preaching the gospel to each other constantly on a daily basis. Because we don't want to be like the church of Laodicea. Let me take you there real quick to Revelation chapter 3. The church of Laodicea, neither hot nor cold. Really quick, we get that one wrong all the time and we apply this to people. Don't be a lukewarm Christian. doesn't exist. Oh, you'd rather be hot and cold and we assess those things like a hot on fire Christian and a cold doesn't care licentious Christian. That's not what he's talking about. There was a hot stream on the outside in a city nearby Laodicea. Hot stream, good minerals, healing waters. There was a cold stream over here on the other side of Laodicea. Cold drinking water, good. Both hot, cold, useful. By the time the waters flowed to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It would make you sick. You couldn't drink it. It was useless. It would, they would vomit you. Jesus said he would vomit you from his mouth. So you can't be a lukewarm Christian, but that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about being a lukewarm church. That's what we need to be avoiding, church. We cannot be lukewarm. There's no such thing. Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth because you think you have it all. In our properest world, look at the words. I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. That is all of us. But he says you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We cannot be like the church in Laodicea. We cannot be lukewarm and we cannot be useless. We have to be hot or cold and be useful. See, Jesus always leaves us with the assurance and the comfort that we need. He is always with us. We do it by His power. So my call to you, church, before I leave you with Jesus' final words, I'm just going to read them and we're going to end there. But my call to you, church, is as a church, we repent, we turn from our sin, and we follow Christ obediently, sacrificially, and if you don't know who Jesus is and you are hearing my voice this morning, the call to you is the same. Repent and turn from your sins and follow 
Jesus. We need to be obedient. We need to share the gospel to a hurting and broken world by sin. The world is hurting and broken because of its sin and Jesus is the only answer. He's the only one that died and came back to life and is with us to the end and that is the assurance. As he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray, church. Thank you for joining us today on Renewed by the Word. Our desire and hope is that your time in the Word with Pastor Edwin will continue God's renewal in your entire person and life. For more information about Redeemer Church Miami and Pastor Edwin, visit their website, RedeemerChurchMiami.org. That's RedeemerChurchMiami.org. May God bless you richly, and we look forward to being with you next week.